0: This is Hell. Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show as Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend?
1: Oh, it was good. Uh, I did absolutely nothing. Mm. It was wonderful. Actually, no, I worked on the show a whole bunch. Uh, Front page is looking a lot better, everyone. I went out on
0: Friday night with my girlie. I took her out on a date, and we went and bought a toilet. So that was fun. So Friday night out, buying a toilet, and then what's better than having a toilet installed at 9 in the morning on a Saturday morning? There's absolutely nothing better than that.
1: Did you get one of them tall toilets?
0: I did kind of get one of those tall They're all to- too tall
1: nowadays. Yeah, they are, but
0: uh, at least the... I, I know far too much about toilets now. And I don't want to know as much as I know now about toilets. The toilet I bought... The way it advertises itself is it says it can flush 18 golf balls at once.
1: <laughs> Are I you buying this on, were you buying this on TV at 3 in the morning? Yeah, on
0: golf TV. It was, it, was, it was an ad. I did not understand that for the life of me. I have no idea why that's some sort of metric. I don't know if that's something in the plumbing industry that I'm unaware of, like our shuttlecocks, 16 shuttlecocks. Is that a different type of flushing mechanism? I have no idea. And then I was getting my house re- ready because I got family coming into town, and then I'd unexpected guests, which are always great. The whole thing means I'm friggin' exhausted in this shift to a new work schedule is really wearing me out. This week on This Is Hell, we start by welcoming you to Hell World, and not our Hell World, but another Hell World of Dispatches from the New American Dystopia, sent out by musician writer Luke O'Neill. The book is a collection of essays that appeared at Luke's Substack website, and you can read and subscribe to at luke.substack.com. So we'll be discussing his writing on war, racism, fascism, our carceral state, Because I was looking for Luke's most hellish work Later on this week's show We'll talk to law criminology and criminal justice scholar Christine S. Scott Hayward Who is co-author of Punishing Poverty How bail and pretrial detention fuel inequalities In the criminal justice system Bail is incredibly racist and classist And creates a justice system that has More people in jail right now Who have not been found guilty of the crimes For which they've been arrested Than those who have actually been found guilty Of their crime And the vast majority who have not been uh, found guilty of a crime who are being hel- held in jail Are being held because they can't afford bail And we'll also be having a mystery guest on this week In that it is a mystery to both myself and Alex who the guest will be But I think right before today's show we may have confirmed that Didn't we confirm a, another interview this morning or is that
1: not yet? Yeah, sentenced? yeah, we're all good for Wednesday at 10 Okay, and who is it? We're talking with Bree Busk about her new Roar mag piece on the Chilean protest movement.
0: We'll also have this week's Rotten History. We'll share what you are writing to us with the rest of our listening audience. We'll have the question from hell, which Alex is now revealing and posting at the end of our Monday live stream, so around 11 a.m. Chicago time every Monday. We'll tell you what's happening on our bonus hour of This Is Hell, available only by subscribing to This Is Hell at patreon.com slash this is hell. We want to thank you for everything you do for This Is Hell, as well as tell you what's happening on upcoming shows. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Alex has this week's hangover here.
1: Uh, Did you invest in an American Standard Titan two-piece tall elongated toilet?
0: No, the elongated is an issue because our bathroom is kind of small and that would get in the way of our uh, cat's litter box. So we had to go with the circular, not the elongated, which leads to the taller toilet, and we did get an American Standard, but we
1: got the Champion 4, which my Do I really want to continue talking about this? No. What's this week's hangover cure? Maybe a Patreon exclusive. (laughs) uh, Because I'm just looking up videos on American Standard's website of them flushing golf balls. (laughs) It's extremely American. Uh, This week's hangover cure is the Portuguese favorite, Francesina. I should have probably looked up how to spell that Mm -hmm. or how to pronounce that instead of looking up these golf ball videos. N-H-A.
0: I always think in Portuguese that's like
1: N-Y-A. From a review at Bloomberg of the many new books on ways to cure hangovers because the world is ending and we're drinking more... Writer Kate Crater suggests the Francesina of Porto, Portugal in her article, The Best Hangover Cures at Home and Abroad. Crater reports, a showstopper of meat, cheese, and carbs. Man, you are going to need this toilet. <laughs> <laughs> the holy trinity of hangover food. Francesina is a glorious specialty of Porto. Ham, roast beef, fresh sausage, and linguiça. Portugal's answer to chorizo is stuffed between two slices of bread, smothered in melted cheese, and topped with a fried egg and a beer-spiked sauce. Essentially, it's an extreme version of France's, France's Croque Monsieur that makes this week's Hangover Cure the Francesinha of Porto, Portugal.
0: That does not sound like an extreme version of France's Croque Monsieur. It sounds like a completely different sandwich. That sounds really intense and entertaining at the same time. This is not the media. This is hell. And that's one of our longest running taglines on our show The very first tagline was Fueled by caffeine, powered by an accordion Because we had a live accordion player on the show We also had someone playing piano live And they would riff when I read whatever news I felt like reading on air Which kind of describes the kind of guests we have on the show Or topics to cover It's kind of whatever we feel like Which is very much not the media Unlike what I call the media We are definitely not Chasing what's trending, we spent the past week here on This Is Hell talking up the people power of collective politics and actions like squatting while reminding ourselves of the evils of white evangelicalism and the U.S. military-industrial complex at war with itself in Syria. So we're not hitting what the media would call the top stories of the week. It's always pretty annoying and seemingly shallow media analysis when someone uses a term like the media, and I use the term the media a lot in my media analysis, but that's because I play a pretty annoying and seemingly shallow character on this show, and I think I'm pulling it off rather well if I do say so myself. If this is not the media and this is hell, then it would probably be helpful if we shared with you exactly what media this is hell is not. So... This is hell is not the media that shaves or gets a haircut at any regular interval. We're not the media that combs our hair, let alone uses product. This is not the media that wears makeup. Not that we couldn't use some, it's just, you know, the effort. This is not the media that can afford healthcare. It's not the media that gets its teeth whitened and bonded. Sometimes it's not the media that brushes its teeth before going on air. It's not the media that goes to the tanning booth or works out. It's definitely not the media that wears a suit or a tie, let alone an American flag lapel pin somehow thinking that reflects the wears objective journalism. This is hell is not the media that believes supporting the troops is an objective phrase. This is not the media that believes supporting wars is patriotic. This is not the media that believes patriotism is appropriate when considering writing or reading the news. This is not the media that believes in framing our understanding of the world as us versus them or friends or foes or Axis and allies, which is apparently a classic board game I've never played and everyone who has played has told me it's awesome, yet despite never playing, I always think everyone who tells me Axis and allies is awesome is a weirdo. This is not the media that thinks it's really cool when Air Force Jets streak over stadiums before the big game or accepts the singing of the national anthem as anything other than militant nationalist propaganda that is complicit in the rise of the far right in the U.S. and believing it's anything other than that takes a complete recognition, lack of recognition, of the imperial history of the United States. This is not the media that glorifies the next deadly weapon technology normalizing war, even making it glamorous. This is not the media that ignores the wasteful spending on the death machines of the military-industrial complex instead of life-giving structures like universal health care and fully accessible and resourced education or housing or protecting the legitimacy of the voting process or wiping out institutional racism, patriarchy and misogyny. We're absolutely not the media that ignores the military's massive impact on climate change. This is not the media that really gives a damn about polls except when I can use them to support some point I'm trying to make in a question to a guest because I'm trying to mimic the media in order to get information from the interviewee. And their response is usually, well, that poll, or well, polls in general, or their funding is suspicious, or the question was posed in a weird way, or the polling of that process of that group is not very good, or that polling agency is a conservative or liberal organization, or polls are generally meaningless, which they are, and this is not the media. So we don't really care about polls because Herman Cain isn't president, and Mario Cuomo never became president, and hundreds of other candidates who led a poll here or a poll there at some point in the history of presidential polling, are not president right now. This is not the media that relies on polls to glean anything about the candidates' actual policies. This is not the media that believes polling numbers can somehow help voters compare and contrast their potential choices in the voting booth. This is not the media that supports one side or the other. This is not the media that cheers on political candidates like they are our favorite players on our hometown team. This is not the media that ignores how sports are teeming with politics as in overflowing as well as in teaming up as in partnering with sports while simultaneously dumbing down the Democratic political discussion and debate down to the parameters of a stadium scoreboard. This is not the media that mistakes former military officers and intelligence officials as foreign policy experts instead of what they are, trained warriors and enforcers of U.S. imperial power overseas. This is not the media that mistakes the world's wealthiest people as the ones who know the most about the economy. This is not the media that mistakes capitalism for something they call the economy. Wouldn't it be great if, when they break for the Dow Jones numbers, Nasdaq, or the S and P 500, instead of saying "in the economy today," they said, "in capitalism today," like in "in capitalism today," the Dow took a major hit. In capitalism today, unemployment numbers stayed low, but unemployment or but employment numbers aren't that great. Of course, the media doesn't report the far more important employment rate, which accurately reflects what is happening in the United States workforce, unlike the misleading unemployment rate, which is nothing more than the percentage of people the government knows are not seeking a job. And there's plenty that aren't working that the government doesn't qualify as actively seeking a job. This is not the media that believes economic growth as a global policy is sustainable, or more to the point, the planet isn't sustainable under permanent growth. This is not the media that views Hillary Clinton as someone anywhere close to the left. This is not the media that views President Trump as anything but an authoritarian. But Hillary's got a lot of that in her, too. This is not the media that told you Barack Obama was going to be the greatest president ever. This is not the media that got any hope from Obama. And this is not the media that got any change from Obama. But that's what we expected because... This is not the media. This is not the media that thinks if we just get rid of Trump, everything will be fine. This is not the media that wants to go back to some fantasy good old days of bipartisanism, which is nothing more than one party rule in disguise. This is not the media that just wants all our politicians to get along. We're not the media that celebrates celebrity while refusing to report on collective actions that have the real power to change the world. This is not the media that makes Greta Thunberg top news while completely ignoring the incredible confrontational politics of Extinction Rebellion and this is not the media that ignores that Extinction Rebellions and many other uprisings around the world over the last few decades have been the result of radical black feminist organizing and activism strategies and experiences this is not the media that reproduces the media, this is not the media that revels in the latest capitalist consuming trend this is not the media that wants to get in on the next meme or paid attention to the last one for that matter this is not the media that has any advertisers, ever, so we are completely listener-supported, and that's definitely not like the media, which is funded by major corporations. The less they appease their, those corporations, the less money they make, the less successful they are. This is not the media that has any corporate oversight, any corporate pressure, any concern about being labeled unpatriotic whatsoever. This is not the media that wants to make millions of dollars so we can retire to luxury yachts, but a few bucks so we can have a dinghy at the end of the dock on a lake would be nice, and right now we can't even afford the oars. This is not the media that has an agent or wants an agent. This is not the media that believes we are living in a meritocracy, but for some stupid reason we do believe somehow that we will earn a living based on the merit of our programming. In other words... This is not the media that wants to be famous, but making a living off being popular wouldn't be so bad, I guess. probably would. This is not the media that talks to those on the far right, because they get enough access to the media, as it is, and when you strip down anything they say, it's nothing more than a dog whistle symphony, endorsing hate and turning that hatred into racist and gender-based violence. This is not the media that believes the Republicans or the Democrats can fix the United States, but this is the media that believes if you want to save the U.S., and that's a big if in this media. But if you do, you got to burn that old racist patriarchal constitution and write up a new one. So no, this is not the media that genuflects the founding fathers, the framers of the constitution, but this is the media that finds both those phrases misleading, offensive, lacking any real historical context, and are nothing more than political myths created to dupe citizens into loyalty to a very undemocratic document and system. This is not the media that thinks it's so high and mighty to be authorities on morality or ethics or that our values are the standard and acting outside of them deserves punishment, maybe even some jail time. This is not the media that's trying to sell you anything other than the stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. And all that stuff we sell, all it is is propaganda for This Is Hell. This is not the media that tells you their merchandise is anything but propaganda for their shows. This is not the media that infantilizes the disabled and elderly, condescendingly using them as props in a display of the media's generous feeling, kindness. This is not the media that infantilizes everything except kids, which they sexualize long before puberty. This is not the media that likes to say I, so we end up saying we, when what you're hearing are clearly the thoughts of me. Now that we have revealed the media that we are not here at This Is Hell, the media I mean during these oratories when we say the media, then what media is This Is Hell? And to be honest, I haven't figured out that yet either. I mean, we haven't figured that out yet either. So join us as we find out together tomorrow afternoon, Tuesday at I think 3 p.m. Chicago time here at ThisIsHell.com. For a one hour, this is hell, and this week we are on to more hell, starting with war, racism, fascism, and the carceral state, moving on to the classist and racist system of bail before we wrap up with our show with, well, we don't know yet. We're not quite certain, but I believe it's going to be Bree Busk talking to us about what's happening in the Chilean uh, uprising that's happening right now. And, of course, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. After we speak with our first guest this week, as we do every week, we'll have rotten history. The very worst history has to remind us of this week. Don't blame us. We warned you. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry, live from the United States, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. We all know this is hell. We've been telling you that since 1996. But our first guest this week has been giving a guided tour of the hell we all live in for the past several years. Here to tell us about the war, fascism, racism, all that stuff that exists in our horrible carceral state, writer and musician Luke O'Neill, author of to Hell World Dis- Dispatches from the American Dystopia, which you can subscribe to at Luke's Substack website, which is luke.substack.com. Welcome to This is Hell, Luke. Hey, how are you? Well, I understand that you and I have the same gastrointestinal problem right now, so we'll have uh, <laughs> quite, com- uh, quite a competition. You know, our, our new studio is right across the hallway from the bathroom, which is much better than it used to be.
2: Well, that's very convenient. Yeah, always was always... <laughs> <laughs> so in your
0: essay, I would want to drink their blood. You write, there's a girl I never want to let myself forget. Her name is Samar Hassan, and we killed her family. Then you describe the killing of uh, her family by U.S. troops in Iraq at a checkpoint in January 2005, as discussed in the film Hondros, a 2017 documentary about the life of the late conflict photographer, Chris Hondros, who was on hand at the shooting and took pictures in its aftermath. You add the photographer would soon be banished from traveling with the company after dis." Regarding military commands Requests not to publish those Photos now those are the photos and you said That those are the photos that really brought it to you It brought the dead you say the distant unknowable Easily ignorable Iraqi dead to Life for you now those are the Photos that they didn't want us to See it reminds me of a conversation we had with Pulitzer Prize winning author Viet Thanh Nguyen Who was on to discuss his book nothing Ever dies Vietnam in the memory of war And he was pointing out that uh, a major Change since the U.S. Vietnam War and when it comes to U.S. TV news coverage, is you do not see the dead bodies of U.S. troops anymore. Would, do you think showing, would showing images of U.S. war dead, do you think that would more violent images release to the public and especially picked up by the largest media outlets, would that change in any way in your opinion, the way in which people here in the U.S. view even support or oppose war?
2: Well, I, this is a sensitive topic and I understand that there are, there are people who have, you know, make a, very, a convincing argument that uh showing the, the the dead bodies of you know not necessarily the u.s troops but you know the people that who that our policies and our actions kill uh around the world that that can be sort of a sensitive subject and it can be sensationalized and particularly when it's you know non-white bodies that are being used to to illustrate uh uh you know war and destruction and So that's one aspect of this. I I also think that this relates to our our gun crisis in the country as well. And I sometimes think that, well, why don't we show the dead bodies, put them on the TV, put them, you know, whenever there's a mass shooting, you don't, I I can think of very few times we have even seen any evidence of blood when these things happen. So, my thinking uh, my instinctual thinking on this is that if we were to see the horrors uh, that we that we instigate and that we put up with that people would would you know no longer be so passive and uh, uh, you know accept this as uh, inevit- uh, you know as an inevitable uh, uh, outcome. Um, but I don't know for sure. I I, I really don't know wh- whether or not that would have an effect, or 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 if it could be, you know, it could work in the other direction. What do you think?
0: I'm I'm not too sure either. And one of the things I was thinking about during your response is how how much do you think it would have? Or let me reword this. What impact do you think? Uh, the the war making that we're doing overseas has on the violence that we experience here in this country Because I don't think people make a connection between the United States exporting violence and the potential for us to be creating our own violence here at home That isn't somehow connected
2: Well, I do think that there's certainly directly uh, a direct connection uh, You know, it's not uncommon for some of the people that come back and, and commit violence to have been people that we've trained uh, to become more effective killers. And, you know, we, we, we you know, we, we train the these soldiers and then, then we send them into these horrific scenarios and, and maybe they, you know, see their friends killed or, or they end up killing people themselves and, and they come back with PTSD. And, and that certainly uh, feeds into the, the uh, domestic gun violence that we have here.
0: Uh, so... How honest do you think our relationship here is in the U.S.? How honest is our relationship with our understanding of the war making of the United States at any given moment?
2: I I, I think it's there's almost no honesty to it at all. And, um, you know, we're, we're seeing the, this stuff the, uh, on the news in the past two days with this raid on ISIS. And I I don't know. Do you? I don't know if I trust anything that I'm hearing about it. Um, and you know, the, the, our, our wars in the Middle East have been going on for, for long enough now that if you know the the wars themselves are now old enough to enlist to go fight in those wars, you know, it's like 18 years. Um, and I don't think most people even think about it. They probably go months without remembering like, Oh, right. We're, we're at war.
0: And that'd be easy to blame on individuals. And I don't want to get into that hyper-individualist, neoliberal kind of view of the way that people do view war. But at the same time, what does it say about a society, a culture, a nation that is so disconnected to war?
2: I I don't know. I think we're supremely, superlatively selfish and you know uh, systemically and also individually as well but but it, it starts you know it starts with with uh from the top and uh i i don't know it doesn't say anything good about us
0: yeah, that's an understatement so uh you mentioned the impact uh it, this killing had on the u.s soldier specialist brad hammond who killed samar hassan's parents Uh, And he sent an apology to Samar. Uh, He appears in a film, as you described, he appears in a film now as a broken man, unable to emotionally process the extent of what he did. Hammond still has nightmares every night, he says in the film, over shots of an overflowing bag of medication, anxiety pills, and so on. He still sees Rakan. Uh, Samar's brother walking down the street when he goes to sleep. He asked the documentarians to please tell Samar if they could find her, that he is sorry. She did not accept the apology. I recently saw a documentary where several veterans who had grisly experiences fighting on the ground on the front lines say the worst thing you can do is go up to a service member in, I don't know, a store and say thanks for your service because it brings memories rushing back to them of what they have done in the military. There's the slogan, support the troops. In your opinion, how much do we support the troops when we support the war? If Do we support the war? Do we support the troops? What are we supporting when we have a uh, we support the troops
2: bumper sticker? I, I don't know. That, that's another difficult one. and um, I, I, I think it's kind of disgusting the way that we elevate our military in this country. Uh, but I personally am undecided how much of that blame we're supposed to uh, share with the, the people that actually enlist. Uh, that's sort of a difficult uh, line for me to walk. Uh, I blame more than anything else I blame our government and I blame our you know, our, I blame capitalism and I you know, the pressures that we put upon uh, people in this country who we may find themselves in a situation where Enlisting is one of their only ways to that. It seems like that they can make their life better um, So that's you know, that's a tough one to judge, but I think <clears throat> It's interesting because right now, as we're recording this, this whole uh, conversation is going on about Trump at the at the World Series last night. And he he got booed and everyone's very excited about that. But right before that, they were showing uh, they showed pictures of of some service members who were there and the whole audience, the whole stadium was cheering. And I don't really understand why we do that. Uh, you know, what, what are we cheering for? The, the, these people are not, you know, keeping us safe. They're not defending our freedoms. So why do so many people feel compelled to do this? Thank you for your service, our brave heroes thing. It, it, I don't know. I, I find it really sort of upsetting and gross.
0: It always upsets me. I find it really gross when I go to a sporting event and they say, uh, and please, if you are a veteran, please take off your hat. Like they have special new instructions for if you are a veteran during the uh, singing of the National Anthem. Right. What do you, what explains to you why those in the audience don't see that as a political act? Why do you think they, they have the ability to erase the politics from those very, very political acts?
2: Because the saying anything negative about the military is anathema in this country. And, and look at me, even, you know, I'm, I'm this you know, far left, uh, you know, sort of critic who's constantly, you know, uh, talking shit about the government. And, and even I feel like I have to measure my words when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, criticizing the troops, because they're, the, they're it's part of our civic religion here in America, uh, in which we've elevated the military to, to these deities, you know, and, and all of their, you know, any criticism of, our military excursions around the world is, is falsely uh, <clears throat> conflated with this disrespect for the brave men and women, you know, and uh, that's part of the system that keeps um, us engaged in these conflicts around the world. Many of them are of our own creation. Because, uh, you know, people are scared to, to even say, you know, anything disrespectful about the troops. And it's no secret, you know, obviously you know this and I'm sure all your, your listeners do that even, you know, liberal Democrat politicians will vote for almost any war making, uh, you know, decision that comes across their desk. And and they all do the same uh, you know genuflecting at the altar of the military thing that the, the right does there's almost n- there's no daylight between um, Democrats and Republicans when it comes to this idea of worshiping the troops.
0: In your essay on Samar Hassan, again called "I Would Want to Drink Their Blood," the reason that I picked that out as one of the essays to discuss with you today is because I knew that there was going to be a state funeral this coming we- that you know this past weekend, and uh, you write at extensively about the funeral and what was eulogized about John McCain at his funeral, and coincidentally enough, 52 years ago today, John McCain was taken prisoner by the North Vietnamese, with the uh, you know. Uh, Context of uh, Samar Hassan We want to revisit that John McCain Funeral and so you write That weekend I saw a tweet that got 100,000 retweets in the first 24 hours it was posted it was a video Taken from John McCain's funeral at the National Cathedral in which Michelle Obama can be seen taking a piece Of candy from George W. Bush Another tweet that weekend from the New Yorker's Susan Glasser Captured a sepia-tinted nostalgia theme that abounded across social media. Quote, Hillary Clinton and Dick Cheney next to each other at John McCain's funeral seems so much how Washington used to be and is no longer. When America hears these stirring patriotic songs today, do they even hear the same words? Glazer is waxing nostalgic for... What? Luke, what is the world that you think she wants to go back to where the leaders of the two supposedly opposing parties are all chummy and friendly with each other? What is that world?
2: Well, I think the subtext of a lot of the commentary around the McCain funeral uh, was about Trump and the mistake that people like that and people in, you know, the legacy media, ostensibly Democrats, you know, many of them. Uh, The mistake that they are falling into, which is something that you alluded to in your opening monologue, is that the day that Donald Trump disappears from office or from the earth, uh, things are not going to snap right back into to some uh, comforting, you know, uh, place where we were all come together. You know, it's a made up thing. They, they, they seem to think that all of these problems started the day Trump took office and that's not true at all. Uh, and that's one of the things that I try to emphasize in the book is that these are not the reason things are bad now is not because Donald Trump is president. These things have always been bad. Uh, you know, <clears throat> people have been going into debt for over health care long before Trump. Police have been murdering us long before Trump. We've been starting wars around the world long before Trump. And the, the, there was before Trump, though, there, there was there's this perception that it was all, you know, this respectful game. You know, the Democrats and the Republicans, they disagreed. Sure. But they all. You know shook hands at the end of the day and then you know it was civility and and you know and, and that's all made up uh you know sorry i'm trying not to curse here it's not <laughs> that easy <laughs> and that's all that's all fiction you know and but the and, and that's one of the big part of the reasons why the, the centrist corporate media they just are not equipped to deal with this thing they're still playing you know trump i do think trump is a pretty unique danger um, in a lot of ways, but he's certainly not, didn't cause all of the problems that we have in this, in this country. Uh, and I think that a lot of people like that, like people who write for the New Yorker and and the New York times and and things like that, they, they seem to think that once he's gone that, you know, we're going to go back to some, some level of sanity that didn't ever really exist. They just didn't really pay attention to it as much.
0: What happens, do you think, to the Democratic Party when it waxes nostalgic for the good old days of Bush and Cheney?
2: I, well, I think Democrats, by their very nature, are, are terrified of being in power, you know. And so they look back to this time like, you know, we, maybe we had a few more seats in the Senate, in the one, you know, one cycle, and then we lost a few. And, it, you know, they, I think Democrats are most comfortable with this proximity to balance, uh, if that makes sense. And uh, it, you see this with, you know, some of the, the more progressive young uh, lawmakers that are around and c- certainly uh, with Bernie Sanders um, is that it seems to me that a lot of these Democrats who've been entrenched in power for so long are, are losing their minds over what might happen if we actually start Trying to govern from a position of power, where we can actually make you know changes and make people's lives better. I think a lot of them just prefer you know being in the game as opposed to winning.
0: You're right. There's uh, here's something that came from Bush and McCain's war. I'd like more people to hear. It's one of the last things Samar says in the documentary about the men, Bush and McCain's men, our men, who killed her family for nothing. What would she say to them if they were to tell her they were sorry? You then quote samar saying as her voice rises with anger i will never forgive them i will just leave it to god god will punish them if they were in front of me i want to drink their blood even then i wouldn't be satisfied why does the media forgive bush and cheney and more importantly why does hillary and michelle
2: well i don't know that's one of the more most frustrating things about it uh is that you've seen, we've seen this, how, how easily that, uh, Bush, Bush's legacy has been, uh, sort of, uh, glossed over now that we have Trump. And if you think back to the Bush years, like all of this stuff that is driving us crazy now, all the stuff that drives liberals and, and centrists crazy about Trump, that it, it was all there during the Bush years too. Um, <clears throat> and Bush, You know, of course, in Cheney, they they have responsible for, uh, you know, a million deaths, you know, if not more based on their 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 legal and and, uh, capricious war making. Uh, And I don't know why. I think it's just this uh, like I was trying to say before, it's just just this desire for a false sense of normalcy that drives so much of the media and so much of D.C., um, even if that, you know, it's almost like a nostalgia for, you know, you hear this a lot about, you know, the, the day after nine 11, when we all came together. And I think a lot of these, sorry, a lot of these idiots, uh, actually long for that while ignoring, you know. All of the the chaos and destruction and and murder that that came out of that feeling of us all being together. It's a very dangerous thing when America is, you know, all on the same page. That usually doesn't lead to good things.
0: It's also a very dangerous thing when we depend on our guests for a seven-second delay. So, uh, Luke, uh, as yeah. President Barack Obama never prosecuted anyone from the Bush administration over misleading the U.S. into an unnecessary war that has cost trillions of dollars and literally countless lives as the war would have repercussions throughout the region to this day. To this very moment, we've had more and more repercussions. What does it say to you about the Democratic Party when they will refuse to go after an administration for potentially committing war crimes, but they will go after Trump with Russiagate, his taxes, now Ukraine gate, each with varying levels of merit, but are crimes that pale, at least to me, pale in comparison to lying the public into a war leading to hundreds and hundreds of thousands of deaths. If not more, trillions of lost dollars and money, millions upon millions displaced with many in refugee camps or migrant camps that are overflowing Western borders. Why is it that the Democratic Party will focus on Russiagate, but they will not focus on the crimes that were committed by the Bush-Cheney administration.
2: Well, it's just kind of like this. Like I was saying before, even the Democrats worship at the the altar of our civic religion of the military, and you know, uh, hundreds of thousands or a million Iraqi deaths. That's just you know that that you know that's just the cost of doing business as America to them, and they and you know most they and, and a lot of people in this country don't. Seem to consider that those lives actually count as real lives. And, you know, you can't, if you were going to start prosecuting American presidents for killing people abroad, then it would never stop, right? So.
0: Though I'd like to see those trials. Uh, So, so Luke, uh, at the Elijah Cummings funeral this weekend, there were a lot of the, as you would call them, uh, legacy media outlets, a lot of the liberal media outlets that were. Praising some of the speeches Some of the eulogies that were given by uh, political Leaders where they were making A point that that were anti-Trump Just like happened at the McCain funeral Last year Hillary eulogized Elijah said I am begging the American people to say it stay To pay attention to what is going On because if you want to have a democracy Intact for your children and your children's Children in generations yet unborn We have got to guard this moment This is our watch our Elijah Knew because he was a man of faith and a man of the church that life was fleeting and precious he said in 2019 when we are dancing with the angels the questions will be asked what did we do to make sure we kept our democracy intact luke what do you think hillary is doing to keep our democracy intact and what do you think uh, her and elijah meant by intact
2: Oh God! I don't know. I, I I I didn't actually get a chance to watch any of the uh, the Cummings oh, funeral please stuff. Please do, don't don't do it, Luke. You okay, might, it would okay. really upset you. I'm sure. I I don't know. I I I just kind of wish Hillary Hillary would would kind of step aside and and stop showing up again because you know nothing good is gonna gonna come from that. I, I do. I mean, I don't know. I do think that. There's a point to a lot of this stuff that that people like this that, you know, uh, powerful Democrats are saying about Trump. And I don't think the fact that they are maybe hypocritical on not criticizing other things means that they might not also happen to be right about Trump, if that makes sense.
0: That makes sense. That doesn't mean that they're right about anything else, though. We are speaking right. with writer and musician Luke O'Neill. He is author of "Welcome to Hellworld: Dispatches from the American Dystopia." Luke is a longtime musician. He currently performs in the indie rock band No Hope No Harm. I found out that the website Vanya Land referred to No Hope No Harm as a Boston area supergroup forming in 2016 and consisting of Luke, the former Good North vocalist guitarist Aaron Perino of the Sheila Divine, drummer Adam Hand of the Field Effect, and and bassist James Forbes of CBO, you can find out more about No Hope No Harm at No Hope No Harm dot Was that all correct there, Luke? That was close enough. <laughs> all right. <laughs> you can fact check it later. In another essay titled We're already established that now we're just hangling over the price. You write how in June of last summer, Homeland Security Secretary Christian Nielsen, who has been and will forever be the pinched public face of Trump's cruel ethnic cleansing policy, was confronted at a Mexican restaurant near the White House in a video. Protesters can be seen approaching her table, clapping and chanting, no borders, no walls, sanctuary for all. If kids don't eat in peace, you don't eat in peace. After about 10 minutes, she left Escorted by her guards, this was the day that her enforcement of the separation of children from their parents at the border reached a crescendo. Now, many in the media saw this and other interruptions and confrontations as dis- disproportionate in the response and going too far. They echoed the same sentiment in an attempt to be objective, I guess, when protesters rallied outside Tucker Carlson's home after he had made insulting remarks, uh, even though only less than 15 activists actually showed up and they only protested for less than 10 minutes. But the media went on and on about how it was going too far what does it say to you about those in the media who say these kinds of actions are going too far what does that reveal to you about the media
2: well they're cowards i think that goes without saying and they're also you know uh more interested in and in, uh staying within the good graces of their peers and in, in the profession uh you know again we're seeing this happen today with the with the world series thing and we're Joe Scarborough did this, uh, you know, real scolding monologue today about how unbecoming it is for us to boo the president. And I know I can't think of anything more embarrassing than this concept that we're supposed to respect our elected representatives, uh, especially ones who are actively engaged in crimes against humanity like Kirsten Nielsen was at the time. Um, I, I think that, you know, anytime any of these, any of our public servants show their faces in public, they should be subjected to criticism and, uh, you know, from from the people that they're supposed to be representing. Um, and, you know, that uh, unless they happen to be doing a really exemplary job fighting for, for people, but, you know, how often do we see politicians like that?
0: often like you and you just use the word again the civil argument often it seems like the media weaponizes civility against us to impose something upon us and i've never really figured it out what is with this idea of civility it really it's been bugging me for quite a while right now so why is it that we fall why do we fall for this idea of civility over and over and over again when it seems like it's a system that's being imposed upon us not one that we're living within
2: well, so you take, you know, Joe Scarborough or or uh Jake Tapper or, you know, any of these uh ostensibly center left uh type of news people and they see their uh they see themselves in Tucker Carlson, right? So that they're that's their class. They don't have anything in common with me and you unless you, you happen to be a lot more wealthy than I'm assuming you are based on your uh, <laughs> situation here. Um, uh, and so they see, you know, they, see, or, or, uh, you know, some, like, uh, some Democrat who sees Mitch McConnell getting yelled at, or, or uh, uh, Ted Cruz who got yelled at in a restaurant, uh, the, the democratic lawmaker sees their peers being subjected to, uh, verbal abuse. And they think that could be me. I better come out, you know, and get ahead of this and make sure I register my uh, uh, distaste for this. That that way they'll come up, come back and defend me if, it, if it's ever uh, the shoes ever on the other foot. Um, and they, they, they just have an inability to empathize or put themselves in the position of uh, the people who these policies are actually hurting. You know, uh, I don't think that you know, whoever, to use, in the, just to stay with the Jake Tapper example, I don't think Joe Jake Tapper thinks uh, of himself, like, no matter what happens with the country, whether Trump's there or not, whether it's Democrat or Republican, these type of news people and lawmakers are all going to be rich enough that it all, you know, comes out pretty good for them in the end
0: when Nielsen when Kristen Nielsen was confronted in congressional testimony to explain president Trump's s-hole country's remark and how he preferred immigrants from Norway she explained it was tough language but in reality Trump was hoping to move to a merit-based system for immigration you explain whether it's immigration or hiring for a job or accepting students to schools a merit-based system is what we call it when we conspire to ensure that certain groups of people suffer under terrible enough living conditions that await be really impossible for them to rise to the level of merit in question. They would have to be superlatively exceptional to cross the merit bar, and then we would reluctantly let a few of them through as tokens to be like, see, we are not basing this on race. So I kind of view merit-based system falling into the category of the language of politics that the media and apparently the U.S. public tolerates and what comparative literature scholar Emily Apter writes about in her book Unexceptional Politics on Obstruction, Impasse, and the Impolitic. And she discussed it with us on our show back in February of last year. That is that we allow language like merit-based system, but politics should not be exceptional and that we should accept language that is purposely misleading and adapt whatever political strategy term one party wants to use or the other one wants to create. How much do you see and hear the misleading language of politics that is accepted in our daily lexicon, forming, shaping, guiding, or reinforcing our political debates? How much are we just misled when we go into the debates to begin with?
2: Yeah, that, that, the whole idea of the meritocracy is, is basically what, you know, that's another one of the myths that we tell ourselves about our country, right? That if you work hard enough, uh, that, that, you know, someday you can, you know, you can climb the ladder and, and all it takes is some elbow grease and, and hard work and things like that. And that's really one of the most, I don't the, just dispiriting and, and, I don't know, I, I hate the... I hate the, the term's been overused of gaslighting but I feel like that's what we've done to our entire populace. We were telling them that you know we're lying to to our people is saying that you have this opportunity to be up here in this class, you know the, the people that are telling us about this, but that's just not true. It's it's a lie. It does not matter how hard you work, you are not going to make it uh you know to that level. And I don't know, that basically informs everything we do, and it, you see it all the time when this arguments about the minimum wage, for example, or or health care. Um, you know, we tell people that that uh, as long as they, you know, study hard and and work hard, that that they're going to be able to avail themselves of the of the fruits of their labor. But meanwhile, that we we have. You know, uh, the, their management and bosses uh, siphoning, all, all, siphoning off all of the, the wealth that they create with that labor. And it's just it's just completely uh, confounding and confusing and, and just one basic basically one big lie.
0: I love this description that you have. You uh, call uh, the journalists at press conferences access-addled civility reporters. But reporters (laughs) would argue they need that access to get the information their listeners, viewers, readers need, even deserve as participating members in a democracy. And if to get that access you have to be civil, so be it. Besides, most Americans are civil, so reporters are just trying to represent the polite people they inform. Can journalists do a good job of reporting without access and civility? Without access and civility... How well informed
2: would we be? Well, I don't know how well informed are we now. I guess uh, I think that uh, I mean there's, certain, there's a certain amount of access that is necessary, right? <clears throat> my my attitude is that anytime you're talking to one of these politicians, you just be like "f you," uh, you know. And uh, sorry again, hard to express myself in a in a uh, friendly way. I guess this is, I guess this counts as civility too, right? I'm not allowed to swear on the radio. Um, but, uh, I think that access a lot of times can be, uh, confused for, for, um, insight. And we see this a lot with the, with the, let's say the New York Times political desk that gives us all of these, all of these palace intrigue stories about who's, you know, uh, talking behind who's back in the white house and, And, you know, none of that stuff would would, uh, be, they wouldn't be able to report any of that stuff if they didn't have access. But is it really doing anything for us? Is it really informing the populace? I don't know.
0: You're right. Maybe we should try to put ourselves in the shoes of people like the captured Nazis or Christian uh, Nielsen or Donald Trump. How does it feel to be that type of person? What does it look like inside of a brain like that? Do you feel as if you should hang yourself in shame from a doorknob right now? And if not, Why not why doesn't shame seem to work on the current administration or I should say maybe within the Republican Party or right-wing conservatism as a whole?
2: It really doesn't and this is one of those things that you know, I I like make point uh, Take pains to point out that things all these bad problems didn't start with Trump But this is one that does seem to have really gotten worse, you know, you uh, things were real bad during the Bush years, in in, in this sense, and and you know, uh, I, I feel like Newt Gingrich sort of ushered in a lot of this, um, <clears throat> but they just don't care anymore if they look wrong or stupid, and it's really confounding to me, and you know, more to the point of the the quote that I was saying there is like you know, in in the book I write. The book isn't all just politics. It's a lot about mental health and addiction and, and a lot of my own, you know, uh, internal struggles and, and doubt. And And I feel like an average people uh, all the time, they're they're experiencing self-doubt and struggling with whether or not they're doing the right thing or not. And these people who enact some of the, the, the biggest, uh, you know, the, the most violence against us they just never seem to be bothered, and I just don't – that's such an alien thing to – for for me to even think about. You know, like I, I – the worst things I've done are, in my life are like interpersonal, uh, you know, and friendly uh, screw-ups. But I've never like separated thousands of children from their parents, and like I have a hard enough time going to bed at night on my own uh, just if I acted like a jerk, you know, and <laughs> – Like, I don't know, is that making sense? Like the point I'm trying to make, like, why aren't these people constantly depressed and anxious like I am? And they've done things a million times worse. Right. I feel
0: completely complicit in the evil system of capitalism and I'm broke (laughs) So how much am I really contributing to that is not all that great, but it's still contributing. You have another essay, and I just want to touch on this really quickly because it kind of comes back to a point we were making at the beginning of our conversation. You have another essay on the carceral state, on mass incarceration, on law and order type of politics called He is Nothing Less Than a Traitor a monster and in that uh, you talk about how carceral politics can make us cruel and we started this conversation by discussing how being at war can make the country more violent back at home how what is the impact of the carceral state do you think what is the what is the impact on the non-incarcerated people within our society
2: well, I think we've all—I sort of get into this in that essay—is that we've all sort of become a nation of snitches in a way, and we're expected to inform on each other, and we—you know—we've got this "see something, say something" uh, thing since nine eleven, and you know, maybe to some extent that that could be it. Like, I, I hate you know the cops and the carceral state and in the military industrial complex as much as anyone. But I guess if I see a guy placing a bomb on the subway, I would probably, you know, say something about it. So, you know, I I don't want to, you know, uh, be too crazy here. But, uh, you know, we've got this whole system now where everyone, if you see somebody parking weird, you know, you take a photo or if you see somebody on the subway, um, you know, who's begging for change or something, people will – we'll take photos and we'll share them and we like we're constantly we've like internalized this we've like deputized ourselves into these uh police into part of the police um because we take for granted that it's okay that so many millions of people belong in jail uh and i think you know it's that's another insane thing about this country is that we have such a huge jail populace and i think like we have just started to accept that that's the way things are supposed to be. Uh, You know, especially so many people spending time in jail for, for nonviolent crimes and for, you know, for, for, for nothing basically. And uh, I don't know. I don't, I think I bet most people probably don't even know where the, 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 closest prison is in, in, in the city or the state that they live in, you know, and, and that's part of the point of it is that to, to put the, throw these people away. So we forget about them and don't have to look at them.
0: We have been speaking with Luke O'Neill. He is a writer and musician and author of Welcome to Hell World Dispatches from the American Dystopia. Luke is a completely subscriber-supported writer. You should be subscribing to his work and reading all of it at luke.substack.com. You can read some of his work there right now. And then if you want to subscribe, you can read more. You can uh, find follow Luke on Twitter at Luke O'Neil, O-N-E-I-L 47, Luke O'Neil 47, which implies there's 46 other Luke O'Neills, which is very confusing. Uh, one last question for you, Luke. And our final yeah. question for all of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, we may not all be like George Zimmerman, capable of murdering a young black man like Trayvon Martin in order to fulfill our allegiance to fascism. But those of us who are willing to snitch are comfortable all the same, seeing someone else perform violent discipline on our behalf. Are snitches complicit in Participating in the same fascism as George
2: Zimmerman when he murdered Tavon Martin oh geez uh, it depends on the situation but uh, by and large if you're calling the police on somebody and it's not because of there's a very imminent and clear possibility that somebody's about to be seriously hurt then you know, you're basically turning someone over to the police. And by now you should have a good enough idea of what the police do when they get their hands on people. So stop snitching, I guess. All
0: right, Luke, thank you very much for being on our show this week. Again, you can follow Luke on Twitter at Luke O'Neill 47 and subscribe to his writing at Luke.substack.com. The name of the book, Welcome to Hell World Dispatches from the American Dystopia. Thank you so much for being on our show this week.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, This Is Hell. Alex, what's this week's question from hell, sir?
1: Uh, This week's question from hell, which I'll post on Facebook shortly, is... uh what Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble for this year? Are you not? Don't make jokes about that one because 'cause I'm not gonna read them. What
0: Hollywood Halloween would we'll say? Again. What
1: Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble for? Are you not this
0: year? getting in trouble for this year? Not getting in trouble for this year. So Justin Trudeau can't answer this.
1: Yeah, that's what I was talking about.
0: <laughs> For this year I, I'm sorry I'm taking so long To write this down But I'm an idiot uh, Again So that's uh, What Halloween costume Are you not getting In trouble for this year What Halloween costume Are you not getting In trouble for this year And we have any idea On the prize Any books coming in Do you know Or do you want to Give out a flash drive again Any idea? Uh,
1: We could do a flash drive Or we can do a book
0: uh, We'll figure it out we'll People will find out uh, let's do a flash drive. We'll do a flash drive again because those are really good.
1: yeah, that's uh, everyone that is uh, it's available on our website uh, to purchase too. it's uh, this is hell guide to the twenty first century uh, twenty five top tier interviews uh, from two thousand Onwards! uh, If you want to get somebody into the show also, it's a really great idea. It's uh, our best stuff.
0: Yeah, and then you can just copy the flash drive and send it to them instead of giving us some more money, which is a real drag. It's time for Nasty, Gnarly, Nauseous, Naughty, Nerdy, Icky, Drippy, Sticky, Goopy, Gloppy, Globby, Gory, Rotten History on October 30th, 1961 on a... That's 58 years ago this Wednesday On a remote island in the Arctic Ocean The Soviet Union fired the most powerful explosive device ever detonated The RDS-2020 hydrogen bomb Known informally in the West as Tsar Bomba Or the King of Bombs (laughs) So glad to have that translation here Was the USSR's answer to the U.S. Castle Bravo nuclear test On Bikini Atoll seven years earlier But Google still thinks the King of Bombs is Kevin Costner's Waterworld The American bomb Had produced an explosion Of 15 megatons A thousand times bigger Than the bomb Dropped on Hiroshima And had spread Radioactive Contamination Across a large area In the Pacific Ocean Which was blamed Or credited Depending on The way you look at it With creating Godzilla Mothra Gamera The whole Monster Island crew. In response to the uh, huge bomb that the U.S. had just set off, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev had called for a bomb of 100 megatons, but that was found to be too much for the Soviet military to handle. The Tsar Bomba ended up being half that size, but it was still the biggest bomb in history, yielding 50 megatons, or 10 times the combined power of all conventional explosives used in World War II. Only 16 years after the end of World War II, humanity was already able to make one explosive that was 10 times more destructive than everything blown up in the previous war. Can you imagine if 16 years after the hundred years war, somebody invented a catapult that could be more destructive, 10 times more destructive than the whole war? Let's see what the motivated competition of two superpowers racing to destroy each other can do for the world. The Tsar Bomba was dropped from an airplane Whose crew had been warned That their safety could not be guaranteed It exploded two and a half miles above the ground Creating a fireball five miles across A mushroom cloud 40 miles high And a shock wave that circled the earth three times I wonder if that could be felt on the ground by people that must sound weird It completely destroyed buildings in a 30-mile radius And seriously damaged them for hundreds of miles more The same bomb detonated at a lower altitude Above a big city Could have killed a million people instantly Its chief designer... Andrei Sakharov, clearly a very, very sick man, was so freaked out that in the years that followed, he, made, he became a fierce international critic of nuclear testing. Make that one very sick man who snapped. Sakharov was eventually arrested by the KGB and sentenced to internal exile before being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1975. Internal exile. I like the sound of that. It's going into exile without the hassle of actually leaving, traveling. Sure, you're in exile, but your family and friends can visit. It sounds nice. Wait, it sounds like retirement. I say we just referred to sending old folks off to old folks' homes as internal exile. Then you won't feel so bad about not visiting. In Rotten History, on November 2nd, 1975, 44 years ago this Saturday, the body of the Italian poet, journalist, and filmmaker Pier Paolo Pasolini was found on the Mediterranean beach of Ostia, Italy, not far from Rome. Police concluded that Pasolini had been beaten to death with a metal bar, run over with his own Alfa Romeo GT. So clearly suicide. Pasolini, an avowed atheist and Marxist Was openly gay and his films and political Writings had made him a highly Controversial figure in Italy And the perfect profile for suicide A 17 year old male prostitute Named Pino Pelosi and definitely Related to Nancy or at least I hope so, Pelosi had been With Pasolini on the evening of his death Later confessed to the murder and was convicted The following year but 30 years later Pelosi Would retract his confession saying He had witnessed Pasolini Being killed on the beach by three mafia type characters who called Pasolini a filthy communist and also threatened to kill Pelosi's family if he had talked, which explains why Nancy is now Speaker of the House Along with new forensic findings and new information pointing to an extortion plot Pelosi's retraction caused police to reopen their investigation of the murder, but it was soon closed down by the mafia, I mean the judges, citing a lack of sufficient evidence. Pelosi died in 2017 and the murder of Pasolini remains officially unsolved Although I'm betting Nancy Pelosi knows a lot more about it than she's letting on. That's rotten history, and this is hell. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's live streaming one hour? Of this is how are we starting at two or
1: three? Uh, we're starting at three. Okay. And that is going to be Christine Scott Hayward, author of Punishing Poverty, How Bail and Pre-Trial Detention Fuel Inequalities in the Criminal Justice System.
0: And again, remind everybody about Bree Busk being here on Wednesday. Uh,
1: Brie Busk will be on to uh, give us an update of the protest movement in Chile. She actually has a new piece in Roar Magazine. Uh, we talked to her earlier about Chile's transversal feminism. That's right. We learned the word transversal uh, from Brie, and that was in March. So go back and listen to—she's great. Uh, that interview is one of our favorites. I've played it a couple uh, different clip shows, too. So. So uh, a in Brie Busk onto our website, B-U-S-K.
0: At this is Hell.com. Also, Jeff Dorchin will be doing A Moment of Truth, of course. We hope to see you at our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, Chicago's Little India neighborhood. More than a meet and greet, this is Hell Office Hours. This is a think and drink. Join us any, each, and every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from this here studio. Alex, again, what's this week's question from Hell?
1: This week's question from hell is what Halloween costume are you not getting in trouble over?
0: What's your Halloween costume Are you're not getting in trouble over this year Leave your response at our Facebook page Facebook.com slash thisishellradio Or tweet it at us At thisishellradio I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host Chuck Mertz Oh yeah, and this week's prize is Again, we're giving away the flash drive Loaded with the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century Including 25 classic This Is Hell uh, interviews From this century Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry I want to thank our guest Luke O'Neill Thanks to Ronaldo for helping us with rot- Rotten History, and Alex for producing, as always. Uh, let's see, I guess that's about all I can have There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody is stupid. My demon
2: is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.